Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Inclusive Educators podcast. This podcast is supported by the University of Colorado Boulders Center for Teaching and Learning, or the CTL as we refer to it, and I am Dr. Rachna Bhave. I serve as the Equitable Assessment Specialist at CTL and have recently donned the role of hosting this podcast. For those of you listening for a while, you, know, you may know that this podcast was created and hosted by our colleague, the Inclusive Pedagogy Lead, Dr. Cortez Scott. At the start of this year, he moved on to greener pastures at Colorado State University as the Assistant Dean of Inclusion, Diversity and Equity in the College of Agricultural Sciences. And I'm so thrilled to have him back on this podcast to engage us in a conversation with our guest today, Dr. Antar Sichavakunda. I was introduced to Antar's work by Quartes, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome them both in a conversation today to delve into the themes centered on Black joy and Black campus life. Our conversation draws from Dr. Tichavakunda's book published in 2021 titled Black Campus Life, The World's Black Students Make at a Historically White Institution. Dr. Tichavakunda, uh, is joining us from the University of California, Sa Santa Barbara, where he is an assistant professor. His research focuses on the sociology of race and higher education. And I encourage you all to check out more of his published work on his website, sichavakunda.com, also linked in the episode notes, along with the link to the book he published with uh, SUNY Press. The book was also part of Antar's doctoral thesis, which he completed at the University of Southern California after a Bachelor of Arts in Education Studies from Brown University. Prior to his doctoral studies, he worked as an 11th grade English teacher in the public school system of Washington, D.C., which is also where he was born and raised. So welcome, Antar and Cortez. Um, I want to um, start off with this question, Antar. In your book, you mentioned how identity can often shape contra contrary ways in which one experiences college, something I've always been intrigued about by uh, myself, but the magnitude of this, I only actually realized much later in life when I reflected on my own experience back in India as, um, as a person belonging to an upper caste community. Uh, reflecting on the privileges I had and then contrasting it with how I experienced the university I did my PhD in where I became the minority being an international student moving to the US and that's where I, I suddenly it struck upon me the way I experienced UVA is very different from that of my peers. So um, I want to uh, start off this podcast discussing a little bit about if you could share with us what is your lasting impression of when you think back to your experience as a college student. Thank you so much for the question and also thank you all for just letting me join you in conversation. Um, and yeah, that's such a good question. I, I often think back back to my experiences uh, back in college. I was, like As you mentioned, with the Brown University, and Brown University was uh, at that time maybe six point four percent black, um, and you know it was funny because I, I mean I'm dating myself here, but when I went to college, uh, my first year in college, Facebook um, just became like a thing. You know, like I remember when it was Facebook High School and then Facebook College, and I remember when I was in high school, 
there was like the merge of high school and college Facebook. It was just Facebook, you know. So I remember that. So Facebook was just a thing. And, you know, like all the novelty of it all. Um, and I had a really, you know, enjoyable time in college. But one story I'll share very quickly is my first year, and I mentioned Facebook because of this. My first year, I remember when I came back to D.C., some of my friends would, like, look at my tag pictures on Facebook. And they were like, oh, so how was it being at an HBCU? And I was like, what? And they're like, you, you go to HBCU, Brown. And I'm like, and some of them thought it was Morris Brown, right? But also they were saying, like, you're only in pictures with black people. It has to be an HBCU, you know? So I'm missing that to say my world at Brown University, for the most part, outside of me going to class, um, was like in the black social world, if you will, the black community, if you will. And it wasn't a deficient way of me doing college. That's just kind of how it was, you know? Like I grew up in D.C., Chocolate City when I was coming up. Um, and this is a community that I found uh, belonging in. And I also realized early on, as I mentioned in the book, you know, um, you know, there, there are also structures on campus that, and also ideologies and people's attitudes that didn't make me want to socialize into the mainstream campus, right? Like I remember when I got to college and I'm in, um, classes and some people I was doing group projects with, you know, non-Black people. Um, I remember in particular, these two, two girls, there were some swimmers, white girls, and we had like basically an all-nighter working on a project, you know? And um, during that time, they're like sharing inside jokes. And it was, you know, it's my first year. I'm just trying to make friends, you know? But I'm feeling ostracized in that. But, you know, every so often, you know, they would include me. But I remember like, I would see them on the street, like after that, like maybe the following week, and they would just walk right by me. And I'm like, are you all not going to act? Like, so anyway, I just found like a lot of non-black people, especially white folks, they just were me, <laughs> you know? So, I'm not going to, like, you know, just kind of push myself into communities and groups that aren't kind to me, you know? So I went where yeah. I was celebrating, went where I, where I felt welcome, you know? Um, so I think about that, and I think about in these interesting ways, when I said mainstream campus life, right? What is mainstream? And I think in my book, I try to tease that out. What is the mainstream campus life? When you think about the typical student at UVA or typical student at your undergrad, who is the typical student? What's their race? What's their class? What's their gender? You know, what's their sexuality? What's their, uh, you know, uh, religious uh, standpoint, right? So we have all these taken for granted ideas about who the typical student or who will be catering the campus to. And in my book, I try to kind of, um, you know, uh, up in that and wrestle with that idea. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thanks. Cortez, I had the same question to you. Could you share with us a lasting impression when you think back to your experience as a college student? Well, yeah. Well, one, thank you for inviting me back to uh, to the show and everything and being so gracious with the the introduction and excited to see you again. And Tars, we've uh, we met each other at a previous institution at Rex State University, and I invited him on the campus to talk about the book, uh, number one, and also his work with uh, just understanding the experiences of, of Black college students in higher education. So his work is phenomenal, just like uh, Rachana recommended for you all. I definitely recommend you all uh, uh, reading a lot more about it, uh, reading a lot more of his work because it's very insightful. Yeah, that is a really great question. And yeah, when I think about my own college experience coming into it, my experience was a little different. Uh, I've mentioned this before, with being on the podcast, you know, formerly being a foster kid and everything. So I've navigated a lot of different areas originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, but 
my experiences in the foster care system have taken me around a lot of parts of Ohio, whether or not it was a lot of black identified communities or a lot of uh, white communities as well. So the, the high school that I ultimately ended up graduating from was a predominantly white high school, even though the economic world in which we all lived in wasn't the greatest. But uh, for me, I grew up with a, a with a lot more experiences being around uh, white people. So once I transitioned to college, which that was kind of crazy for me because I was still a, a first generation college student. Uh, and then, you know, immersing myself onto a uh, a college setting that was still predominantly white, uh, a small liberal arts school that was Quaker affiliated, which was also in a very conservative city. Um, the last thing that honestly I kind of thought about was the racial dynamics, just simply because I was so used to being around a bunch of white people. But I will say I did transition onto I was on the football team. So I do remember my first impression being on that campus, because, again, you know, when you're on the football team in high school, everybody typically kind of hangs out with one another, at least like, you know, kind of we go by classes as honestly what it felt like. Uh, or even position groups. But once we got, once I got to college, I remember going up to the dining hall our first time, you know, during a break on, from, uh, from, from practice. And I mean, once I walked upstairs, I just saw like a bunch of white people on the left side of the room and all the black players on, on the right side of the room. So I literally had this question of just like, you know, there's the book, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? But that's literally what I thought. Like, why are why are every, why is everybody sitting together by racial groups? And then, even more, I was wondering why the coaches were just so comfortable with the way that that looked inside of the cafeteria. So that was one of the first things, and it kind of gave me a glimpse of maybe what the the college experience would ultimately look like. And mm -hmm. uh, to say the least, you know, I, it wasn't as bad in terms of you know having six point six percent of our student uh, population being, you know, represented as black identified students, it was a little bit better. It was 10% for us. So even that was still crazy when you're on a college campus and it's roughly a thousand students and roughly you're thinking maybe a hundred, a little bit more than a hundred students are identifying as black. So for many of us, uh, there were a lot of black identified students um, that were creating social worlds for themselves, whether or not it was through the black student mm. union uh, or even some other you know, smaller groups and different things like that, folks that were finding uh, roommates to kind of live with. And you'll see it as you start to go up the, the class ladder, the uh, the higher or the the higher, I guess, like grade if you are or the year that a student is, you'll typically see them hanging out with a lot more students that are, you know, of the same race. I was automatically added into, I don't know if this was some type of intentional thing as it relates to mm. uh, racialized students, but I was added into what was called the peer mentoring program. And it was for black identified students. Now, I don't know academically what they saw <laughs> like with me prior to coming there or like what else it pertained to me being added to the program. So one, I do appreciate it because it was uh, it was helpful in terms of being able to establish some initial community coming in. But it always made me question why I was added to that beyond like the racial factor. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, just going beyond that first year overall um my lasting impression was that i was able to navigate and have a lot of great experiences largely because of the investment of the faculty into myself in addition to a lot of those really great relationships that i established with uh, with my peers on campus 
uh, it was a small school again, and I'm, I didn't get overly involved because it was a small school, but I will say that because it was a school with a thousand students, it did create a lot more avenues to get involved. And especially if you were interested in something, you know, you were really empowered to go ahead and do those things. So those were my experiences, at least, you know, as a, as an undergraduate student. Thanks so much for sharing that, Cortez. And when you both were relating your experiences, I was thinking back to the book, but also my own experience of when I came to UVA, noticing that and being so shocked by it, to be honest, because when growing up in India, we see a lot of casual interactions among people across racial lines as portrayed in films or in TV shows, you think that, oh, it's so it's so easy to go there and make friends, like everybody talks to everyone. It's great. And then when I came, I noticed that oftentimes the white students would hang out only with white students. So there's a lot of division of social hangouts based on racial lines. And that was such a dissonant experience for me for that first four months, realizing that well, the U.S. is not all that progressive as it's portrayed to be. But then because I did not own a car, I was I used to take the bus uh, around to navigate the city. And when you're on the bus, you it becomes very clear very quickly who has privilege of money, access, and who lives in what regions in the city and how systemic racism plays itself out in the society and it was a revelatory experience. And, and once I had that experience, I started thinking about my own privilege being in India and thinking about its parallels with caste. So thanks so much for sharing that. Before you ask this next question, because what you just stated also made me think of a question to ask Antar. One, you know, when you're talking about Brown, that's not just one of the best schools in the country, it's one of the best schools <laughs> in the world. There are some students, and I've experienced this, where when you make them aware of something that they're doing, and then sometimes like that can be kind of uh, dysregulating to their system, if that makes any sense. I genuinely don't think that there were some students that were aware that their social mm. worlds were largely white. So when you make them aware of that, like, did you have any experiences with any folks um, that you came across and then you, you know, you had a conversation and you kind of presented that to them? Like, hey, uh, it seems like you mostly only hang out <laughs> with white people. And that became like maybe an uncomfortable. That's a good question. Um and honestly, no, um, primarily because of what you said at the end. It's going to be an uncomfortable conversation, and we don't even need to have this conversation. But it is a thing, right? Like, I, I think in the book, I highlight how uh, Catherine, I think she worked for the Black Cultural Center. And I asked her, how does she think about the Black Cultural Center as a space on campus at this predominantly non-Black uh, institution? And I think it's similar to other places as well, where you have like black places or even black organizations. And she said uh, in response, she was like, well, you know, not everyone needs to come to the Black Cultural Center. You know, if you find belonging in robotic, in the robotics club, if you find robo uh, belonging in NESI, National Society of Black Engineers, if you find belonging in um, intramural field hockey, I don't know, right? If you find be belonging in a panhellenic, historically white fraternity or sorority, mm. right? That's what I, I'm, that's what I care about, right? If you, as long as you have some place to feel like you belong. But I also want you to know that we are here if you need us, you know? Um, so yeah. do what you do, but we are also here. And she also said that oftentimes students would have, as you mentioned, Quartez, like kind of like that racial awakening, that one moment, right? Where it's like, 
you know, it, it might be a black woman trying to get into a party on fraternity row, right? And they don't let her in for no apparent reason other than potentially the color of her skin, the fact that she's a black woman. Um, so her gender as well. And then she said, like, you know, I'll get people coming in like clockwork, like once a year, someone will come in and crying. The, the first time I see them in my cultural center, you know, in the cultural center. And, you know, in her mind, she's like, well, I mean, you're black. You didn't know, you know? So sometimes it takes, unfortunately, that traumatic event to be like, maybe I don't need to be in this social world. But, you know, you have folks who are raised around, um, you know, predominantly non-black others. And if that's where their comfort zone is, I think that's fine. I think it's also cool to know, like, hey, you know, the black community or black social worlds are here to support you and welcome you if you see fit. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. And because even with that experience, it reminds me of a situation when I was an undergrad. Uh, this person was, I think they were a class after me, but uh there was a there was a, a fraternity, not gonna name the fraternity, but they are historically white. Uh and there was this student, black identified student that went to all their parties, used to hang out with them like all the time like the brothers in the organization, like all the time and everything. So once the uh, the recruitment season came around, he was interested in joining the fraternity. And when they did their bids, he was the only one to not get a bid. And then that became wow. like this huge conversation on campus about clearly that that uh, organization, um, you know, being racist. And then now it was like a lot of them that were like, no, like what? Like, we're not racist and like all this other stuff. And then they're talking about the history of the organization. And it's just like, if we're not racist, like this just has, there's just never been like a black person who's been a part of the organization. Like that was a very uncomfortable conversation that took place mostly in the Greek world on campus. But then, you know, like, what does that look like? And then how to navigate that? And then, you know, the perceptions of all of that. But I certainly agree with everything that you said uh and are in terms of knowing that sometimes those conversations are specific to certain groups like the the goal is for this particular group you know to it's for us to improve belonging or even mattering now with mm -hmm. this particular community so you know I, we had somebody on our campus or i said our campus like i still work at cu boulder uh, <laughs> at, at, uh, at university of colorado boulder so another great scholar well, a great friend Dr. David Humphrey, he had this really great point. It was a group of us, Black men in particular, that were talking about, you know, how to improve and promote belonging on campus. And he said something very powerful, very simple to me, which was, you know, sometimes I don't necessarily focus too much on the belonging. Sometimes we need to focus on how we just allow people to be. <laughs> like, how do we create a space where people can just authentically be themselves and not feel like, you know, because like, sometimes the belonging in those mattering pieces, sometimes it can feel performative. So he said some, some some parts of authenticity really can be centered on how do you just allow a person to just be in that space and be themselves. So as you're you know responding with that answer, I kind of thought about that experience with the student and in, um, in that Greek organization. Good segue and a great question, Cortez. But I was also thinking that uh, to your point that maybe the onus shouldn't be on people of color to bring up the fact that they're seeing grouping based on racial lines. I think making the conscious effort to get to know people you don't usually hang out with, caring and being interested in their lives 
is not something that can be forced but if someone self aware and and conscious enough to make the effort to do that i feel it benefits them because it opens such new worlds and perspectives right and i feel like college is one place where you can do that have fun with it too but also recognizing that there is a power dynamic in that relationship no matter what and being aware of not inflicting harm just for your own curiosity thinking about the social worlds of students on college campuses antar i was uh, struck by the title of your book itself and the word make struck me because it indicated how active that process of creating that social world can be so i was wondering if you could shed some light on what what it takes for students to create and maintain that social world and then how has the need of that social world evolved so, so i'm 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 really appreciate that question I, i feel like i've never been asked that so thank you um to to your point like that's precisely it i wanted to show that students are active agents in creating these social worlds right like these social worlds do not merely exist by themselves it's not like you go on campus and you're like I mean and it's for various groups it doesn't just have to be black students you know yeah. um but it's like you know if I'm black student going to a, a predominantly non black institution and I'm like all right where's the black community at right like where, where, where they at where, where is the black community social world you know then you can have a campus that has black students without a black community so that's what right. I always trying to impress on people you can have the students without the community Because I'm say, can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> you can have black students without having a black community because it takes effort, it takes intentionality, it takes like agency, it takes labor um to create a thriving community of any sort, right? Regardless of um race, you know. I mean, obviously I think race will make the community building different. I use that concept of like black place making was originally enabled in um in the work of black sociologists. Like I'm really curious in like the labor, intentionality, creativity, ingenuity um that it takes to create a thriving black community, a thriving black space or place, mm. right? So that's why so I'm really glad you asked because I wanted to show that not only it takes work to create these social worlds, you know. That's a great point and uh, and I'm struck by it particularly because it relates to even my own experience as an international student at UVA. um there are tons of international students there but i didn't even know that i needed that community to feel a sense of belonging until i attended a concert re- related to indian music and i met a bunch of uh, american students undergraduate students actually who were from india and yeah. and just realized like that was that was what was missing in my life until then Um, yeah. and i imagine for a lot of students that's what happens because they're isolated in their individual departments you often have such few students belonging to a certain community or race mm-hmm. and so they may not even know that there is that community that they're missing out on yeah. uh but also about the labor that it takes right because then i just invested time in in creating mm-hmm. and maintaining that community because it was so important to me and i wanted other people who came after me to also have that community um and it was interesting how uh, the system or the administration will always co-opt once a community is created and it's maintained 
they'll co-opt it to say, oh, look, we're so diverse. We have all these resources for these students. But when, but the act of building that community takes so much effort, funding, constantly going through bureaucracy to get permissions and so on. Um, and I experienced that not only at uh, UVA, but also at my alma mater in India. I also still came from a point of privilege, but to just create a student community, we used to go through so many hurdles, given yes. that I was a newer institution. Um, so I'm wondering if you could shed some light also on um, what toll it takes on the students in order to create that community. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And hopefully, if I get my act together, that'll be my next line of research, you know? <laughs> I'm really trying to explore, like, this labor aspect, you know? Uh, so I think it takes labor. I also think it takes space, you know? Like, as as you mentioned yourself, right? Like, it was you at a concert, and then you're like, wait, 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 like, I needed this. I needed this community, right? But it's about space. It's about that moment, you know, that moment in time. So I think one thing I hope, like, you know, universities need places, I think, like, actual brick and mortar spaces and events for these groups, right? Um, and the events will often be created by whatever group we're talking about. But anyway, to get back to the toll, you say, you, you, you mentioned, like, what toll does it take on students? Um, you know, it, it's a, uh, I, I do think in some ways, and some students I talk to, it was a burden, you know, um, but it's a, similar to because a lot of the work they're doing to create a thriving Nesby, for example, National Society of Black Engineers and Nesby chapter, um, you know, it takes time. It takes time, right? Like, and it's time that they could be spending studying, time that they could be spending, I don't know, like just hanging out with friends elsewhere, you know. So it's like it, it does take an element of responsibility there. Um, but I think for some students, it's welcome, you know, because there's so much meaning within that creation of the space, you know, like, yes, it is a burden, but that burden is welcome in a sense, right? And that's not to say that we should, we or universities, as you said, uh, you know, uh, beautifully co-opted. It's not even what you said co-opted. It's that, you know, students of different marginalized identities, I think, have agency and they will flex their agency hopefully to create spaces of belonging for themselves you know i think universities what we can do as institutional agents is what can we do to either get out of their way when they make these spaces or help them support these spaces in different ways but i do want to say i do think it's a burden i kind of highlight or point to this work um uh laura hamilton uh they have a piece called like uh, about racialized equity labor and mm. that's just thinking about the work that um student activists and racial justice folks folks who work in racial justice efforts on campus conceptualizing that work as labor right and labor that is potentially exploited and co-opted by the university you know so you know i do think it's labor i do think it takes a toll somewhat but I think that if you're from a marginalized background and this space is important to you, um, it's like, okay, which, which burden do I want to carry more? The burden of being the only one and not having a space where we can all come together or the burden of trying to put together something, you know? And I think there's also beauty in that, in the latter burden, you know? There's also yeah. meaning in that latter burden. There's love and joy within that process too. So, yeah. Yeah, I was about to say with that, um, in my experiences working in the the Black Cultural or the Blinga Black Cultural Resources Center at Wright State, 
with mm-hmm. all of the black social worlds that I saw, it was it was a lot of labor that went into creating and maintaining those spaces. And it was also to what you just said, Antar, like it was the labor of love for a lot of those students because they recognize that if they didn't have those spaces and they didn't create that there, where else was I going to get it from? Exactly. And one of the cool things for me working in that inside of that space is also working with the number of alumni that I worked with um, who you know graduated, some of them just a couple of years ago to anyone that graduated 50 years ago from the institution and them still being able to, I mean, cause we had a podcast too through the center and I worked with one of, I had a conversation with one of the founding members of the Belinga black cultural resources center and him talking about, you know, all the stuff, the civil rights, you know, uh, everything back in the sixties and, and all the things that they experienced as students on that particular space. And of course we see a lot more of this flood of black student activism during that period of time. So then it was one of those, kind of inward things of just looking at right state and what they lacked and what they needed. And, you know, being able to hear him talk about the experiences of going to people's houses and, you know, sitting in the basement and, you know, just thinking about the things that they needed and then what they were going to do about it. Right. And then not just thinking about, you know, the lasting impact that it was going to have for them, but what that would mean for the students that came after them as well. So Mm. it's one of those things where, you know, it, it takes a lot of labor to make it. It also takes a lot of labor to then maintain it, which is why for me, it's important for educators, whether or not you are an instructor or an administrator, to really support the work of, of those student groups. Because some people will promote it when they when it's convenient for them. Oh, a student yeah. is struggling <laughs> and I got nowhere else to go. So, hey, have you heard of uh, this Black student organization? And they'll say it then. But then they don't go to their events, right? Like they're not, you know, finding money to put towards like their events or towards those events, you know, different things like that. So, right, like the support can't be performative. You know, how are you actually finding ways to support those student groups uh, and add to the work that, that they are doing as well? In addition to what you said, Antar, which is I also appreciate that from the book as well getting out of the ways of of students because they don't necessarily need you to tell them what they should be doing. It's one of those things of like, how can you find the areas to support them where they need you while also not being somebody who they need? Okay. You can chill now. We we don't need you to help out with this particular portion. Uh, That's a great point, both of you, but I was also wondering uh, and this is particularly with the participant you interviewed, Antar. Uh, ne- uh, I guess Nina, I think was her name, um, where she talks about how she can't be the only person showing up at all these events, right? Like sometimes the toll can just be because you're such a small group in the in the university campus, you end up being the only set of, or there may be like a select few who really feel they one they're getting meaning out of it, but I guess. What I'm trying to get at is it shouldn't be to a point where they're burnt out by it, right? And so in that sense, what is the responsibility of uh, not only other students that are part of the community, but also um, what is the responsibility of the administrators in ensuring that, you know, their efforts to diversify the campus doesn't rely on only that effort and it goes beyond that? 
Yeah, thank, thanks for asking that and mentioning uh, Nina's experience. Because um, there was some frustration there, right? And I think, you know, one, it becomes a question of critical mass. Do you have students on campus, right? If there's only, if there's not a lot of students, you know, the amount of students who, who want to be, who will want to be engaged probably in that affinity based type work, it's just going to be less. That's just, that's just it, regardless of what the community is, you know. Um, so one is critical mass. Are you recruiting? You know, so this, you can spread responsibilities. Um, two, you know, how are we compensating? Or how are we appreciate, how are we compensating or how are we appreciating the work or language students like me, right? So that can be done in a number of ways. And I don't know what that money would be like. Maybe it's a stipend per semester, right? Another could be, Oh, I want to give you course credit for leading this organization, you know, mm -hmm. um, and maybe it acts as if like an independent study and it's almost like an automatic aid, right? And so that could help in different ways too. Um, and another could be like, maybe it's a scholarship. Maybe your tuition is, you, you don't have to worry about tuition for that semester, or maybe this content is work study, you know? So you're relieving some of that work, that labor that they want to do either way and supporting them with that. So I'm thinking, well, how can we compensate or should we appreciate that effort? Um, so that's the two things. I'll be like, how can we pay or compensate them, appreciate them? And last, how can we recruit more people? You know, And I think it, it's a mutually reinforcing um, kind of answer. Cortez, was there any question you wanted to get to? No, I appreciate it. Well, so one of the reasons why I reached out to, uh, to Antar uh, specifically inviting uh, him onto the podcast was, you know, in celebration of of Black History Month, um, you know, having a conversation where we focus on the educational space. It doesn't have to be a physical classroom, but whatever that learning space uh, looks like. How would you characterize the college classroom today in terms of how it views and sees and treats Black identified college students in particular? And how can we then as instructors create spaces that does, um, you know, allow for the authenticity of our students while also promoting their success? I know that was a really big question I just asked. Um, I'm not sure, right, as far as like our pedagogical practices. I'm not sure. I think COVID has changed a lot as far as professors, like how professors engage with students, appreciating that mental health is real, it means to take care of it, appreciating, um, you know, more flexible, um, more lenient understanding uh, terms when it comes to attendance or hybridity, hybridity, I'm not sure I pronounce that, for Black students in particular, I'm curious about how um, professors or administrators, anyone can support them and also Black students in particular um, in this unique anti-DEI moment, in this unique anti-CRT moment, right? Um, in this unique, now we're seeing anti-MLK moment. People like mm. we adults are even going that far with it, right? So how are professors equipped to talk about, I mean, you're not even kind of beating the drum of any political party, but how can we empower professors to, who are well-versed in talking about race and identity and critical things, uh, how can we empower them to really teach students and, and teach students how, how to have critical, meaningful conversations across difference, you know? 
Um, I think what we're seeing now is that there's a, you know, this further infringement upon academic freedom. We want to see more and more issues of, um, you know, folks even be able to research topics like what I'm researching. You know, mm. I'm doing a book on CRT and trying to start that and I'm kind of worried about it. I'm like, I'm doing the right thing, <laughs> you know. But so if professors are worried about their particular expertise, that's going to have bigger uh, impacts in the classroom for Black students in particular, you know. Um, that's a big thing that I'm thinking of. And also, we, we might, you all might have noticed, um, I don't really say at this point, predominantly white institutions. I say predominantly non-Black institutions. So when I think about that, a predominantly mm-hmm. non-Black institution can be a historically white institution. A predominantly mm-hmm. non-Black institution can also be a Hispanic serving institution. It can also be a minority-serving institution if it's predominantly non-Black, right? Um, shoot, it can be HBCU, given the way a lot of these uh, the demographics are going to some HBCUs. But yes, I'm, I also think it's important that faculty, uh, as I'm sure a lot of faculty already know, just because you are at uh, MSI or HSI, um, yeah, like it doesn't necessarily mean you are serving Black students, you know? So we, it, it, you can't just get too comfortable and like, oh, I'm, I'm here. You all are automatically mm-hmm. served. No, even at HBCUs, how are you really serving students? You know, um, like, are we attending to students multiply, multiple identities, right? Um, so I think it's always a process. This diversity work is a process. This uh, equity work, racial justice work, it's a process. There is no endpoint in sight. But, you know, the day that we stop working on it, you know, or feel that we've done everything we could, I think, is the day that we, we lose, you know. Yeah, no, uh, and all of that is certainly great stuff to to keep in mind. And it's very true, right? And that's what I learned working in the in the CTL was that a lot of the pedagogical approaches to the classroom, you can trace a lot of it back to like the 14th century. <laughs> like so <laughs> a lot of the ways in which we still teach are uh to really the the best way of, of describing it is that it's in a lot of ways archaic. So mm-hmm. things like COVID and, you know, now the emergence of AI in the classroom have forced us to consider a lot more things, but it's also brought out a lot more resistance, uh, for, in my experience, from a lot of faculty. It, you almost want to just assess, like, how open people truly are to creating learning environments that are conducive to all the needs of their students. And one thing to keep in mind is that the reality is that you won't create a learning space that's conducive to every single person, especially if you have hundreds of people in it. But the cool thing is the aspiration behind it. Like, that's what I find is the individuals that are openly seeking to how can I implement and create strategies that meet as many of the needs of students as I possibly can. And with this particular conversation, just looking at what that looks like for our Black identified students in particular, because mm. the the trends continue to be what they are, which is that a lot of our classroom environments and educational spaces just in general are not supporting the needs of our Black students. And, you know, it's one of those things where we can't keep looking at Black students in particular and using the deficit-minded approaches of asking what's wrong with them versus you know, looking at the inverse and asking ourselves, what are we not doing and what are we struggling Mm. with as it relates to creating a space in which our Black student population is uh, feeling as if they matter as much as their counterparts, that they are taking away 
uh, as much, if not more than their counterparts, so on and so forth. So that's kind of like some of the things that I that I've that I've been struggling with. Thanks, Cortez and Antar, for bringing that up. Um, actually, uh, kind of piggybacking off on that point, uh, what struck me reading your book was how much the the joy and the sense of belonging that Black students got in their social worlds kind of translated then to, or actually failed to translate in some cases to their experience of um, succeeding in the classroom, right? That that for some it was energizing, but for a lot of them, uh, the even though they felt a sense of belonging in, in the particular uh, social world or community, they didn't find that in the classrooms that they attended. So one, uh, could you talk to us a little bit more about the kind of connection between the social worlds of these students to um, how it might translate to academic success? And then second, the disruption of those social worlds may have affected the students, like looking back at maybe the pandemic, when I imagine these physical spaces of meeting were just not available to students. And how can faculty then remediate that access? Yeah, no, I, I love these questions. Thank you. So the first thing I would say is like, you know, it, it, and I say this, I have a paper on like um, Black Joy and White campuses, right? And I, I make like the causal inference, like the causal argument, rather. You know, I don't know anything about uh, causal equations or anything. I don't think it's a stretch to say that if a student uh, finds campus joyous, they will want, they will do better on that campus. They will want to be on that campus. If you harbor negative feelings about a campus, there's a likelihood that you're not going to do as well there, right? Like that's kind of like the argument I make when I'm looking at uh, joy, black joy, right? Um, mm. So that's why I'm like looking at these emotions matters because if we associate good things about being in a space there's a likelihood that we're going to feel more relaxed there and want to succeed there so anyway this that's, that's one thing i'll say and i think if we can make the classroom a joyous space a welcoming space then i think we can make it a better space for all students right um so as far as like the uh, social world translating the academic success i think that um you know it, it's difficult to give more work to some faculty, right? assuming faculty are doing what they're supposed to, right? Um, it's hard to ask them to do much more. Like they're they're being intentional, they're trying to try and do this again, right? But if it, if there's like only you know one black student in the class, what can that faculty member do about that, right? So my thing is like a lot of students will know, like regardless of what their you know demographic is, but you know my work I'm talking about black students that okay i'm not going to get that um, camaraderie that i really really want in in the classroom but at least i can get it outside the classroom you mm -hmm. know so that's where i feel like having a social world outside of it or having a space where you feel like you really belong um i feel like that in that way having an attachment or an anchor to a social world on campus can lead to academic success even if it isn't even if that social world isn't the same as like the major that they're in right Right. So just having that space, having that, um, you know, place of the free, that site, that counter space matters a lot. Um, as far as group work, as you mentioned, I think it's important for faculty, at the very least, to try to scaffold group work a little bit. You know, like, what, is, what are norms for group work? What is it being a collegial partner, a group member look like? You know, what things will not be tolerated? I don't, 
known how many uh, faculty members actually put norms up for group work, especially when they probably should when you have all these different, you know, dynamics in the classroom. Thanks, Anton. Cortez, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to agree with that. You know, just the way that structure seems to be it's one it's one of the you know the common themes that that i've read in a lot of the work on uh centers for teaching and learning and you know just creating inclusive mm. learning spaces in addition to the relationships uh focusing on that as instructor from the instructor to students mm. and from student to student being able to focus on that but then overall just what does the structure of the course ultimately look like um and then not approaching any one thing as if, you know, students should know how to do that one thing, right? You don't want to approach it as if they don't know anything, but you definitely don't want to approach it in a way in which, you know, they'll just go ahead and, and they'll figure it out because, you know, when you do things like that, right, you could create a situation that can create some tension inside of some learning spaces. And one, like you mentioned group work. I have several experiences being inside of classes where, you know, it's always like this, the one student who wants to take over like the whole group and they want to make right. the project, you know, like about, you know, whatever it is that they want to focus on. Everyone else's ideas just is, they aren't taken, you know, very seriously or anything like that. And you'll have a, an instructor that, hey, here's the group work. Here's the project. Here's what you all need to do. And then at the end of it, how did it all go? And, you know, we'll just grade people on that, you know, instead of how are you checking in on those groups throughout that group project? How are you making right. sure that progress is being made, that there isn't one person that's dominating that entire space, so on and so forth? And I know that it's difficult because there are some classes that just have hundreds of people that are inside of it. And then if you're just one instructor, that can be difficult to do. But then that's also a cause for how do you also assign projects and activities that are also manageable as well, right? Because I think that there are some people mm -hmm. that they want to do things because it creates less work on you as an instructor versus it can create like problems for, for the students, right? So there there can be some casualties because of because of those approaches. So yeah, no, I agree with everything that you were saying, Antar. Thanks, Cortez. Uh, some golden tips for our instructors who might be listening to this podcast. Um, Antar, um, I do want to get to this question and we're almost at the end of the podcast, but coming back to how do you think the pandemic might have disrupted social worlds of students? And totally, do, do you, you see a shift post-pandemic in how those groups function? And what advice might you have then for instructors and for, for universities to uh, not only accommodate, but also um, support the thriving of these social worlds, given that they hold such significance to our students and their their success. Fantastic yeah, question. Love that. love that question. Yeah, I love that question. So I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I think the pandemic certainly has disrupted social worlds. I like the word you use and disrupted too, right? Because making a think about social worlds in different ways. I would argue that the digital is also a social world, right? Like we have group meetings or WhatsApps, what have you, that in some ways is a social world. However, I think the question that we need to ask, um, you know, as people who are stakeholders in campus life, 
is the digital a substitute for the brick and mortar? You know, what is lost when the social world is uh, Zoom? You know, how would our conversation right now be different if we were in person? You know, right. And I think at the end of the day, like it's beautiful that we're able to talk across state lines and stuff, right? However, yeah. all I'm saying is like, I don't think that can replace um, just the peer-to-peer, in-person, brick-and-mortar mm. social world, right? I just don't think it can. And this is not an argument for uh, universities or other employers to bring their <laughs> workers back to work every day. That's not what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> I, love, I love remote work is great. But I'm just saying about like, what's going to keep students um, feeling full, you know, socially, spiritually, what have you. Um, they, at UCSB, for example, there's um, there was something I think it was called like, like a lot of black students used to hang out around like the library on you know, like Wednesdays mm. or something. Like there was one area, and I've talked to some undergrads and like over the past I've only been here a year, but a few undergrads were like, yeah, we're going to start to bring this back of coming back to the libraries on Wednesdays, Black Wednesdays or something, right? There's this idea of like, oh, this space was lost, but we have to be intentional about bringing it back, right? So. And, and with that not being there, like even when I'm walking on campus, I don't really see, I, I do wonder where are the black folks, right? So I think about where are these spaces and like how have students and faculty staff gotten comfortable not showing up in person, mm. right? And it, it's tough because I do think there's a really important thing here about hybrid work, remote work, but I do wonder when you know, how we should think about belonging in relation to virtual, you know, or, or should we just completely think differently about the university as a place where we need to belong? I don't know, but I mean, I think it's more faculty, staff, and student. Um, but I'll just say, I do think it's disruptive social worlds, and I do hope students and, you know, universities and faculty can think about creative ways to create spaces in the virtual and in the brick and mortar um for each other for folks with varying various identities as well and just appreciate um and the like the sanctity of such spaces too so don't do that kind of get that question yeah yeah and i'm going to add to that um as someone who has you know worked in a black cultural center the ways in which the pandemic particularly affected the uh the social the the social worlds of black students at a previous institution was the financial piece of it. One, those student organizations tended to be the lowest funded anyway, and that's a whole nother conversation itself. But of course, then when institutions started to covet <laughs> uh, money a lot more and protect that a lot more, because of course, you know, we had a lot of we had a drop in enrollment and everything, which significantly affects the the money that we can spend. When you take away a dollar from a black student organization, that's not the same as taking away a dollar from the student government or any mm-hmm. other organization that is predominantly um, non-black, right? <laughs> to use uh, your your term, uh, Antar. So thinking about what that all looks like because it affects what they're able to do. And then it also puts the stress on them if they do wanna do certain things, then they then have to come out of pocket to do that themselves. And then you have to consider that a lot of a lot of our black students in particular, their finances just don't go as far as anybody else's. And that's mm-hmm. not me saying that that's th- that research shows that. So uh, institutions have to be mindful of when we are doing cutbacks and, and we are taking money away 
from uh from from certain groups or projects or whatever it is, you have to think about who is going to be hit more uh, and who's going to suffer more because of uh, because of the finances that we're taking away. And then also thinking about what that looks like, uh, you know, pandemic wise, when it decreased enrollment, uh, there's a lot more decrease in terms of students of color overall, which there was also a big hit on black identified students as well. So if there's already a very low representation of, of black identified students, um, then being able to think about what that looks like moving forward. So then uh, it could increase a lot more feelings of isolation or, you know, lower belonging uh, on campus and everything, especially if folks don't see as many people who who then look like them. So mm. institutions certainly have to be um, be mindful of of things like that. And then, of course, you know, going back to those support pieces, you know, what does support look like? Uh, and asking ourselves, in what ways can I support students even more than what I believe I'm doing? Great point. Um, I also wonder, like, you know, uh, the avenues of fundraising for such groups may also change given the pandemic um, and, and just not having enough bodies on campus. But uh, I'm hoping that this podcast has given our instructors some insight into uh, the lives of um, black students, um, and particularly ways in which black joy can really impact academic success of those students. Um, and uh, I thank Antar and uh, Cortez uh, for joining us um, today to have this great discussion. Um, and so this is signing off from the CTL, and I hope to see you all next time. Um, and all you folks, give Rachida a round of applause because this is her first time recording <laughs> and leading the podcast herself. And she asked some very great questions. So, awesome uh, questions. Yeah, so. I, I, could, I couldn't tell it was her first time. So <laughs> that was an awesome time. Like just uh, asking questions, great interviewing. I appreciate it. So, yeah, I'm just happy to share space with y'all and just uh, creating, this, creating a space for a good conversation. Good podcasts don't just happen. They have to be made. <laughs> And you made it. There we go. Thanks. That's it. <laughs> I drop. <laughs>